Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Harry Robertson from the Opinion and Analysis Desk. The Reserve Bank of India is embroiled in an intense political battle with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who faces re-election next year, say Simon Mundy and Henny Sender. The government has long pressured the Indian Central Bank to do more to boost growth, but a liquidity squeeze and possible economic slowdown has seen Mr Modi ramp up his attacks on Urjit Patel, the bank's governor. Can the RBI's legally fragile independence hold? This report is narrated by Simon. For most of the past 83 years, the directors of the Reserve Bank of India went almost unnoticed as they held their regular board meetings to discuss mostly administrative affairs. But when the 18 board members filed in for this week's meeting at the RBI's Mumbai headquarters, they were the object of a media frenzy with additional police drafted in to monitor a gaggle of cameramen jostling outside the building's fortified entrance. For the past month, India's central bank has been at the centre of a political storm like few others in its long history. The controversy was triggered by a sudden liquidity squeeze that severely affected India's non-bank lending sector, a key driver of credit growth over the past three years. Amid fears of a hit to the economy during its drive for re-election, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government ramped up pressure on the central bank for stronger action and implicitly threatened to give it direct orders, sparking fears for the institution's prized but legally fragile independence. After nine hours, the board, including Governor Ujit Patel and his four deputies, as well as two senior finance ministry officials, reached a compromise the RBI would reassess its handling of its reserves and its lending restrictions on troubled banks, both key targets of government lobbying. But the agreement still left open the key questions that had dominated debate before the meeting. Huge uncertainty remains about the outlook for credit growth, with non-bank lenders now eyeing sharply slower expansion, and the giant state-owned banking sector still struggling under a mass of bad corporate debt. Mr Modi's government is expected to continue pushing the RBI to fend off a slowdown that could damage its chances in the next general election, which must be held by next May. After a three-decade period during which central banks have moved towards greater independence, the Indian drama is part of a recent trend in which leaders in major economies, from the US to Turkey to Japan, have openly pushed monetary authorities to prioritise growth. The statement issued after the meeting closed on Monday night looks like an attempt to paper over the differences between the RBI and the Ministry of Finance, according to Vivek Dehegia, a fellow at the IDFC Institute, a Mumbai think tank. But this is not over, he adds. This is a crisis deferred, not a crisis averted. 
As India's creaking state-controlled banks were sucked into a crisis of non-performing corporate debt over the past four years, following a glut of lending to ill-fated projects in infrastructure and industry, an opportunity appeared for non-bank financial companies. Thousands of these shadow banks, which face broadly less rigorous regulation than formal banks, rapidly took market share, ramping up loans to customers from scooter buyers to construction companies. They were led by a handful of large blue-chip names favoured by foreign investors, such as Bajaj Finance, part of the Bajaj conglomerate. A growing band of housing finance companies funded a real estate investment boom in India's largest cities, lending both to home buyers and developers. A huge number of smaller MBFCs focused on consumer lending in communities that had been neglected by mainstream banks. Over the past three years, non-bank lenders accounted for nearly a third of all new loans in India, according to Nilkant Mishra, head of equity strategy at Credit Suisse in Mumbai. The trend averted a serious hit to credit growth and enabled the economy to maintain a growth rate of about 7% a year. By the end of March, the sector's aggregate balance sheet had reached 22 trillion rupees, more than $300 billion, according to the latest figures available from the RBI. But the NBFC's rapid growth was built upon a risky approach to liabilities with a heavy reliance on short-term corporate debt. Uday Kotak, founder of Kotak Mahindra, one of the largest private sector banks, says, The tragedy is that housing finance companies with 10-year home loans were borrowing money from mutual funds that had overnight redemptions. There was a huge mismatch. This source of funding was turbocharged after the government's controversial demonetization of higher-value banknotes in November 2016, which forced Indians to deposit their old notes at banks. This resulted in a flood of money into the financial sector, much of which flowed into fixed-income mutual funds. As NBFC's short-term debt issuance soared, there was little difference in borrowing costs between the strongest and weakest, much like the minimal spread between Greek and German sovereign bonds before the Eurozone crisis, says Sanjeev Bajaj, managing director of Bajaj Finance. The risks of this model became painfully clear in September, after a string of defaults by entities within IL and FS, a finance and infrastructure group that was one of the biggest issuers of short-term corporate bonds and had enjoyed a AAA rating from agencies until the first of the defaults in late August, which followed disappointing returns on some of its key projects. A decade on from the US subprime crisis, some observers saw uncomfortable parallels with the sudden downgrades of groups such as AIG, Comparisons that added to investor jitters as the impact of Island FS's woes rippled through the credit markets. In September, nervous investors pulled a net 2.1 trillion rupees from fixed income mutual funds, which in turn were forced to sell securities to meet the redemption requests. The share price of Dewan Housing Finance, one of the larger MBFCs, plunged by 42% in a day after one mutual fund sold its debt at a steep discount. One top financial executive in Mumbai says, It created the biggest fear psychosis I've seen for some time. When a AAA goes into default, everyone thinks, who can I trust? The government took dramatic measures to tackle the problems at IL and FS itself, unilaterally sacking the entire board and appointing a new one chaired by Mr. Kotak. 
State-controlled banks, too, stepped in to provide liquidity to NBFCs, which had until recently been poaching their customers. State Bank of India, the largest of them, announced plans to buy up to 300 billion rupees of securities from NBFCs over six months. The RBI opened the way for further intervention by the state banks, allowing them to provide partial credit guarantees to NBFCs. To increase liquidity in the broader system, it sharply increased its purchases of government bonds to 560 billion rupees in October and November. The interventions helped to calm the jitters, with Indian money market funds enjoying modest net inflows in October. The worst fear of investors, more shadow banking defaults soon after the IL&FS missed payments, was avoided. But tensions were brewing between the government and the RBI, as Mr Patel fended off finance ministry pressure to do more to avert a lending slowdown. The disagreement burst into the open with a provocative speech in October by Viral Acharya, a New York University economics professor who became an RBI deputy governor in late 2016. In a thinly veiled attack on the government's approach, he cited the precedent of Argentina as he warned darkly of the dangers of undermining central bank independence. Since its election in 2014, Mr Modi's government has presided over four years of robust growth and moderate inflation, but the administration has persistently urged the central bank to do more to boost growth. These tensions were widely seen as a factor behind the exit of Governor Raghuram Rajan, a former IMF chief economist, in 2016. When he took the helm, Mr Patel faced scrutiny as to whether he would maintain his predecessor's focus on monetary discipline and uncompromising approach to cleaning up bank balance sheets. Some in Mumbai's financial sector believe that in his efforts to do so, Mr Patel lapsed into stubbornness leading to an adversarial relationship with the government. One Indian bank chairman says, this is a clash of egos. If Ujit Patel had taken the trouble to develop personal relations with the Minister of Finance, this would not have happened. Mr Patel stoked speculation about this relationship in February, when, in the aftermath of a $2 billion fraud at Punjab National Bank, he remarked on the RBI's limited powers over state-controlled banks, for which it shares regulatory powers with the finance ministry. Meanwhile, the RBI's relatively hawkish policy approach, including two interest rate hikes in quick succession this year and lending restrictions on troubled state-owned banks, was winning Mr Patel powerful enemies in Indian business. One senior banker says all the corporate daddies hate him. As concerns mounted about the shadow bank's ability to raise funding, Amid September's debt market squeeze, the finance ministry wrote to the RBI asking it to set up a special credit facility for the sector, according to a person with direct knowledge of the communications. In doing so, the ministry invoked Section 7 of the Act Governing the RBI, a clause never before activated, which permits the government to give direct instructions to the RBI after consulting its management. The invocation of Section 7 sparked concern about a threat to the central bank's reputation for independence, seen as a bulwark of Indian economic stability. Eswar Prasad, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in the US, says, If the government starts directly interfering in the core functions of the RBI, it could lead to the RBI becoming less credible and less effective. The statement issued this Monday was silent on a credit facility for NBFCs, 
but it contained other agreements seemingly aimed at placating the government. The RBI would reassess a scheme that had restricted the lending of 11 ailing state-controlled banks. The phased introduction of new capital adequacy requirements would be pushed back by a year. And a new committee would be formed to assess the RBI's handling of its reserves after government lobbying for a bigger payout to the state. Critics of the government had accused it of a short-sighted effort to boost growth ahead of an election. One former central bank official says, the timing makes the motivation of the government suspect. But the meeting's outcome was welcomed by those who argued that the central bank had erred too far on the side of monetary caution at the expense of supporting growth. The head of Indian credit operations for one major international investment firm says, you don't want the central bank to be politically driven. But the agenda of a central bank can't just be about targeting a certain level of inflation. The debate over the RBI's economic role is set to continue as the ramifications of the NBFC's funding squeeze become clear. Mahendra Jaju, head of Indian fixed income for Mirai Asset Global Investments, says the worst of the seize-up in the corporate debt market has passed, noting narrowing spreads between commercial paper and sovereign bond yields. However, many in India's financial sector are now bracing for a bruising second phase of the market upheaval, stemming from the country's high-end property market, which underwent an investment glut over the past five years. Shadow banking loans to real estate developers and similar assets are worth about 4.6 trillion rupees, according to analysts at Morgan Stanley. With developers facing a sales slowdown, there are fears that defaults from the sector could undermine the fragile return of confidence to the debt market. Even without such a crisis, analysts warn, the market squeeze will continue to weigh on credit growth as newly cautious NBFCs curtail their lending with weakly capitalized state banks in no position to make up the shortfall. Having predicted aggregate credit growth of 10.5% for India in the current financial year, Morgan Stanley now expects it to be as low as 8.3%. Such a slowdown could increase the pressure on the RBI to do more to boost growth. A worrying prospect, argues Mr. Prasad, who says India is fortunate to stand apart from other emerging markets, where central bank independence is, quote, a dubious concept. Others say the recent crisis has forced long overdue scrutiny of the shadow banking sector, and has provided an opportunity to reach consensus in the sometimes fiery debate over the RBI's economic role. The relationship between the government and the RBI will be clarified as a result of this crisis, says Rashesh Shah, chairman of Edelweiss Financial Services, one of the largest MBFCs. A lot of us don't appreciate that India is a work in progress, he adds. And the institutional framework is evolving in real time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this Big Read podcast, you can subscribe on all the usual channels. If you're not already an FT subscriber, visit ft.com forward slash offer for our latest subscription offers. This episode was produced by Harry Robertson. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.